You know, guys, we here at, at Pro Se, we're big fans of Pro Se, of our own show. I'm it's a true. big fan. <laughs> and I think, honestly, you listeners, you're big fans, too. I think so. But if only there were a way to know for sure. I, I think there is. I mean, y- you could go and you could you could leave a review because then that way p- other people who, who might be big fans will find the show more easily. It shows up in more search results. Are you listening on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play? You can leave us a review on any of those platforms. We'd love to see those. Five stars, written review would really help us out. It helps people find the show. And on a more personal level, it really does uh, wonders for uh, our own collective self-confidence. So we appreciate that as well. It makes me feel good. Yeah. All right. Let's get to the show. Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Guys, I have a great update to kick us off today. It brings together all the things I've loved talking about on this show. Okay. It's a prison update about (laughs) Mike the Situation Sorrentino. Oh. And who he's befriended in the joint. Uh... Bernie Sanders or damn, <laughs> Bernie Sanders. Bernie Madoff. I meant Bernie you have, Madoff. No, you have information. <laughs> I've got double Bernies in my brain. Good lord! It's not Bernie Madoff. Say, um, if, if Bernie Sanders is in prison, we definitely need to talk about some different stories uh, on this show. Uh, but anyway. there's two people he's reportedly hanging around with in his minimum security prison. Uh-huh. Billy McFarland. Oh, great. I mean that famed fire festival. He's from. CEO I think, I think McFarland is from New person. Jersey. Maybe. And the other one is a guy named Ryan Collins. I didn't remember immediately who that was. He was the guy behind the leak in 2014 of a bunch of nude photographs of celebrities. Oh. So Mike has really fallen in with quite the crew. Yeah, but but they both really check out. Like, if I, yeah. if I had to think about... Um... So here's the best part. This, this was revealed because... Vinny and Polly D have a new dating TV show. Of yeah, course. and they're, which they're, I will be watching just yeah. for the yeah. record. And they're making like the media. They're rounds. making the media rounds. Yeah. They were on Jenny McCarthy's um, Sirius XM show, mm. and they, this, is, this is a great hodgepodge of <laughs> names going on right it's now. Got it all. <laughs> Sorry, I love it. Go ahead. And they started explaining that the three of those guys play Scrabble together. Oh, I just love that. I love the visual. I'd love to see the words. Play, that are, yeah. Oh, I know. It's got to be the so clink good. has gotten a lot tamer. Is like you know, we're not playing poker for cigarettes. It's playing Scrabble. <laughs> that's right. Like, that's yeah, right. That's I wonder if they Skype in Shkreli. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. He's, he's, if they did, we would have hit everybody. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, that's cool. Yeah. So that was my lighthearted thing. Um, yeah. We do have some really substantive things on the show today, though. Uh, we're going to talk to Brandon Lowry a little later. He's one of our reporters who wrote this great story about the intersection of the tradition at Jones Day and how that's butting up against um, the current Me Too movement and a big lawsuit that was filed against yeah, the firm. Yeah, great story. Mm-hmm. Before we get to that, though, we've got the news, as always, and I think we're actually back uh, on the opioid beat, which we've been talking about quite a bit. Yeah, we were talking last week with Chris about the incest trial. We are still waiting on a verdict there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the meantime, prosecutors announced uh, new charges this week against a uh, a drug maker from the UK called Indivior, mm-hmm. um, claiming they made like billions of dollars sort of exaggerating the the safety of a drug called Suboxone, which is a drug that's actually designed to treat 
opioid addiction. Okay. Well, tell me more about that. So it's not actually an opioid itself. This is a little bit different. It's it's treating that addiction, right? Yeah. Yes and no. It's it's it is it is an an opioid itself, um, but it's designed to wean people off opioids. Sure. Okay. Um, so it works by they, it, they you provide you with like a it's it's like methadone to heroin sure. like it's yeah. a milder hit of, oh, gotcha. of the of the thing you're addicted and to and there's a mitigating and then there's yeah. this also this other thing in the cocktail that um, it goes up against the receptors and it so it makes it so that when you take opioids you don't experience it the same way so mm-hmm. it sort of like kills the urge for it is mm-hmm. the idea um, that all sounds like a really good idea but we have a lawsuit here so what did this company say about it what they do yeah so the um the indictment this week says that there were sort of two big buckets that this company um did wrong um back in like 2007 right around the time that um the original uh suboxone was going to the pill form of it was going to become generic yeah Um, the patent was expiring prosecutors say that indivior started um sort of lying and misleading doctors saying that this new form, this tongue tablet thing that you would like put on your tongue and it would melt, um, Mm -hmm. uh, that it was much safer than the old thing, that it was less likely to be used, that children couldn't get access to it, that it was way less, and most importantly, because it is an opioid, it had way less of a chance to be abused or diverted is the term of art when it comes to like addictive substances Mm -hmm. um, for something like that. What prosecutors say was, is that like there was, no real evidence to support any of those claims. So they basically downplayed the risks of the this super addictive, uh, on its own right, this super powerful opioid, mm-hmm. to get doctors to prescribe it, saying it was this new, safer thing, right as they were losing control over their old generic drug that was about to become a whole lot cheaper. Yeah. Um, the other big thing is that they this company... Um, they, they set up like a phone hotline, a, an online platform for... People to reach out and say, look, I need I'm addicted to opioids. What should I do? Yeah. And it would connect them according to allegedly, according to the indictment, it would connect them to doctors that prosecutors say the company knew were sort of recklessly handing this stuff out and not really applying the kind of rigor that you would hope a doctor would. So, um, you know, the. The prosecutors basically say that that they were they were fueling they were getting giving people this drug when they didn't necessarily yeah. need it by sort of inflating how safe it was. You know, even setting aside whatever comes factually in this case, it really I mean this is a little obvious, but it really speaks to the depth of the problem. The idea yeah. that there's then that there's now a whole other maybe wellspring of litigation, not just about opioids, but about opioid treatment. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and that it follows the same contours like you're saying, like falsely, you know, you know, lying allegedly lying about the addictive state of your drug. Like that's, yeah. that's what happens in the original strain of opioid litigation yeah. over here on this. Um, what about the company? Uh, I mean, they, the, the indictments came down. What do they have to say? Yeah, in Divior, I mean, sometimes you see when companies are charged with stuff like this, they're like, you know, no comment on pending sure. litigation. Yeah. Um, that is not the tactic that they took. Um, in Divior says the DOJ was trying to secure, quote, self-serving headlines on a matter of national significance, end quote. Um that they had been in these talks to settle for years and that they were willing to go beyond what the facts supported that they did just to just to settle the case amicably um, and that DOJ brought this these criminal charges. So they're just um, trying to flex on the whole opioid thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, it you know, President Trump has made fighting the opioid 
crisis, sure. a big part, a big prong of his. So maybe Indivior is sort of trying to tap into that to spin this as, you know, they're just doing it as as a way to to look like they're they're acting on opioids. Um, the quote from Indivior is um, Indivior's top priority has always been the treatment of patients struggling with opioid addiction. Indivior does not make pain pills in the U.S. and is not a contributor to the opioid crisis. So um they don't think that they did this. Uh, we will see whether or not prosecutors uh, can prove that they did. Guys, for our next story, I want to turn us to the world of trial tactics. Um, a really interesting thing happened in a big product liability case this week. Um, it's about ads that could allegedly taint jurors. Yeah. So what we had happen, a California judge refused to bar Monsanto from sending these targeted cell phone ads to jurors. Mm-hmm. It's a case about whether weed killer Roundup caused cancer in an elderly couple. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, you know, the whole point of the jury process is sort of like to to keep a jury pool, un you know unobstructed yeah. right. by the like outside as world, pristine as possible. Whatever would happen, and of course, technology presents its 20, own challenges. Twenty first century gag order issues. You yes, know, like definitely. The, um, but so, walk us through what these ads are. They're they're yeah. I called them targeted ads, but have you heard of the term geofencing? That's Perhaps. the one. Yeah, it sounded a little familiar to me, and then I was like, oh, that one. Um, it lets marketers target ads to your cell phone based on a specific location. Mm-hmm. So, it's like um, pop up ads that'll come up on your phone when you're scrolling through the internet, or or things you'll see in your social media feeds. They can target those based on parameters of where right. you're located. It's like there's a there's you, a there's a cool new weed killer in your neighborhood <laughs> looking to hang so, out. So, I mean, the th- way that I sort of was like, oh, yeah, that definitely happens is sometimes you'll walk into a mall and all of a sudden, if you're scrolling through your phone, you'll see an ad for the store that's like right next to you. This happened in Minority kind of Report, and I thought uh, that was science thought that was fiction. crazy, right? No. <laughs> um, so, yes. so these were that, um, and an attorney for the plaintiff said that Monsanto was geofencing ads right around the Alameda County Administration Building, and that's where the trial's being held. So mm-hmm. it's a very specific type of geofencing here. And were they just, like, what What are the ads? Are they? Is this just like, we're Monsanto, and we make Roundup, and you should get some Roundup? Yeah, no, they weren't just <laughs> trying to sell the product. They said that they were an effort to sway the jurors, that they aren't selling that product, okay. that they're touting safety and scientific studies. Hmm. So it goes so pretty So it's like sort of like preemptive, like, you know, it's P- putting the question out of your mind that it might be dangerous at all. Yeah, I mean, they um, just to give an example, I mean, I, I haven't seen the ones that were the internet geofenced ones, but mm-hmm. part of this motion to try to get these uh, this behavior stopped, um, the plaintiff's attorney said that there was this full-page actual print ad, an online ad in the Wall Street Journal mm-hmm. that came out the same day jury selection began, oh. and it touted the company's 40 years of testing, regulatory approval, safety of the Roundup product. So they're ones that are pretty specifically saying, like, no, Roundup is very safe. And it would make sense that they would do that. I uh, there's Right. It makes it makes a lot of sense that they would do that in a general way. Like, you're, you're fully entitled, if you're being sued for this really egregious thing, to release a full-page ad and say that you're not doing it. The question becomes whether or not they were targeting those ads at jurors in some sort of intentional way. Right. Yeah, I think um, what you point out is really true. I mean, there's tons of brand experts out in the world that tell companies, oh, there's lawsuits and, and the public is hearing about these. You should go out on the offensive and put out an ad about what you think your side right. of it is. And that's what's happening to Monsanto right now. There's... Um, there's this one individual trial, but it's just one of many. There's over 11,000 lawsuits yeah. pending over whether or not Roundup causes cancer. Yeah. So it's being widely covered by the media. There was a trial held last summer that um, 
had a $289 million verdict that was mm-hmm. slashed down to uh, under $80 million, but it's still a huge amount. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then there was a second trial that ended last week. It also had an $80 million verdict. In so, California, too. Yeah. Yep. So there's there's a lot going on here for the company, so you can see why they'd want to protect their brand. Makes sense. Um, and they say, well, I mean, this is a sort of a key question about what's going on with the, with the, with the jury pool. I love some of the things Monsanto has said about this because it's very strident language. In responding to this motion to suppress these ads, they said that that was uh, unconstitutional and necessary and dripping with hypocrisy. <laughs> so here's the hypocrisy Came through dripping part. with hypocrisy. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, isn't that just like a great quote? Visceral yeah. language. That's, so, a, that's a Cardi B lyric to throw it back to last <laughs> week. Right. Anyway, yeah. So here's what Monsanto means by that. They're saying they're not the only ones with ads, that the plaintiff's firms in the case have put out a ton of their own ads in the San Francisco Bay Area where yeah. these trials are happening. Um, and they say they are disparaging Roundup, essentially. They cited one that features Aaron Brockovich in the ad. <laughs> and Aaron Brockovich says, corporations are putting their profits over our safety, and it's happening now with Monsanto. Right. So it's very clear. And they said that... Um, even at the start of this trial, they had moved for a mistrial at the very outset because yeah. of those ads. So we've got a little ad war happening with this this uh, roundup. Stuff. So we got a we got a ruling from the judge, right? That that we did. Yeah. So the judge came out and of course brought up the First Amendment. That's what you would imagine, and sided with Monsanto. The judge said there's hundreds of trials about this, and um, courts can't block all of Monsanto's ads. It's just not something that can be done. She ultimately said she has to also assume that the jury's just going to follow her instructions. Yeah. I mean, there's some implicit thing that judges have to think when they tell jurors not to pay attention to outside media and to report anything that they have seen true. that they are going to do that. And her quote was, the jurors are either going to listen to my instructions or they aren't. Yeah. It just it, it asks so much of like the it's such a bold sort of subjective thing to claim that they did like that you know that they're they're directing this thing over the courthouse you know i just really loved this story because you know i like talking about things where the law intersects with technology sure, and yeah. this is the perfect embodiment of that in a trial setting which we don't always get so yeah. um they didn't win this time but i can't imagine this is the last time we'll hear questions about geofencing and ads Jones Day is one of the most prestigious law firms in the world, but now it's facing a new lawsuit that says the firm gave women associates lower pay and fewer opportunities. The case is one of several filed against major firms in recent years, and it has cast a light on Jones Day's secretive pay system and powerful managing partner. The firm has long billed those as key strengths, but the lawsuit says they enable discrimination. Here to chat about that is Brandon Lowry, who read a great story about the whole situation. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Hi, great to be here. So I, I want to get into um, a bit about Jones Day before we dive into this lawsuit in particular, because I think people need to understand what is going on at that firm and what it's like. Um, seems like they have a really unusual approach to things there. Can you tell us a bit more about that and, and what makes them stand out? Yeah, Jones Day has a couple of structural aspects that make it a bit different than a lot of law firms. Um, first, it has a managing partner who is invested with um, a lot of authority, uh, pretty much absolute authority to make managerial decisions. 
Uh, that's not to say that he necessarily uh, makes every single decision and, and micromanages everybody, but uh, it, you know, it gives him a, a lot of authority, mm-hmm. uh, more than a lot of firms give a managing partner. Um, second, there is the uh, black box pay system, meaning uh, nobody knows what anybody else makes. There are no standard pay steps. So you hear, um, you know, the, the standard for new associates at the, the biggest firms might be, you know, $160,000, say. Um, Jones Day won't make that commitment. They won't, they, they pay uh, even associates, beginning associates, uh, different rates uh, according to their own standards, which are all kept secret. And your story did a really great job of laying out that this is sort of, it's sort of a vestigial organ, right? Of this, of they're like a hundred years old, these, these sort of policies. Um, and now we're sort of talking about them in the light of these lawsuits, but it's, they have a long story behind them, right? Yeah. Yeah. This goes back. Actually, there have been seven managing partners total at Jones Day. Um, and this goes back to the very first managing partner who joined the firm uh, at the turn of the century, uh, that meaning, you know, in like around 1900. Yeah. Uh, his name was uh, uh, Frank Jin. And uh, he started at the firm uh, as an associate and eventually became a partner and worked his way up to managing partner um, after one of the other two uh, named partners ended up uh, getting murdered in a mysterious way in front of the governor's mansion uh, in that's uh, a Cleveland. that's a whole nother story for a whole nother podcast but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but so they yeah. but so those the, just, the, yeah keep going sorry so so that this this system has has carried through to all the way through to present day correct yes um, so he became managing partner in 1913 and until 1937 and during his uh, his time as managing partner he came up with these two systems uh, and this is according to Jones day uh, they they advertise these two systems as part of the uh, the magic that makes Jones Day different than other firms. Yeah, it and, really uh, it really stands it, out to me that the part of their magic is from the era you're talking about. I mean, it seems maybe a bit out of step with some of the modern realities, and that kind of gets us into the lawsuit that was filed about this. Um, can you tell us about the suit itself and and how these structures are sort of interfacing with what women associates say happened to them at the firm. Yeah. Uh, no, as you said, yeah, things have changed a lot since the early 1900s. Uh, you know, we, we care about uh, diversity now in a, in a way that we didn't back then. Thank goodness. Uh, and, you know, back then it was a, first off, it was a very small firm. And second, it was all male. And, you know, it, it, there wasn't, uh, th- these concerns probably never crossed Frank Jin's mind when he came up with these ideas, the, you know, the, the, the idea of, of diversity or discrimination. Um, now, uh, you know, we're in a, in a different world. The legal world is completely different than it was then. And um, these, these policies that may have been um, intended to solve the problems of, of jealousy and uh, um, you know, bickering inside the firm, uh, but you know, by using uh, opacity, by, by by making sure that nobody knew what was going on really behind the scenes, and and investing all the authority in one person, uh, this is basically 
everything that diversity experts would tell you not to do. Right. But so set the set the stage for for, for you know for what is actually happening this week cuz you know we sort of hinted that a lawsuit has been filed but you know tell us who these people are, what they're claiming and you know what they say that the firm did. So a group of uh, female associates at Jones Day have filed a 200 million dollar uh, lawsuit, a, a proposed class action uh, alleging that Jones Day uh, discriminated against them, denied them opportunities, paid them less, uh, and, uh, you know, in, in some cases actually forced them out of the firm after having children. And um, there are a lot of very specific allegations that kind of tell disturbing stories about individual incidents, and, uh, but, but generally that's what these women are, are alleging. And, um, you know, in, in something that was interesting in this lawsuit is that it, it, it talks a bit about this history and about these policies and um, kind of looks at these, these old policies and criticizes them in a, in a modern way. Yeah. Um, one thing I really loved in your story, Brandon, can you tell us the anecdote about one of these female associates the first time she was at an event where the managing partner was speaking and, and, and sort of how the associates react to trying to get some face time with him? Yes. Uh, Andrea Mazingo is one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit, and she told me that when she was a brand new associate in 2014, uh, she learned from the people in charge of training her that uh, Stephen Brogan, who is the managing partner, uh, remembers every personal interaction he has. And it, it kind of had this, this mythological quality uh, to her. It seemed like, I think she called it folklore. <laughs> right. Steve Rogan has this, this this kind of a this kind of memory. So the first time she got to see Steve Brogan speak, it was at a uh, a, a speech during uh, during their training, talking about how important the work Jones Day does is. And uh, after that speech, he uh, he met with some of the associates in the room. And some of those associates got their handshakes, but uh, Ms. Zingo never got to shake his hand. Yeah, and it seems like from that story that the subtext is if you don't get to make that connection, you have no idea. But your guess is you're not going to get as high a salary or, or raises like other people because he's the big decision maker and right. all it, this is so opaque. Well, and a thing we've seen in, in so many of these lawsuits is that, the, you know, a lack of institutional like systems for dealing for for making sure that those opportunities are are handed out in a in a fair way that's what this feels like that it's right. you know it's this it's when you have that much concentration in a single person it you know it, it raises those kind of issues and creates sort of the situation that we're that we're talking about bill it also really begs the question is there a lore that um i remember every personal interaction with all of the members of the staff here at law 360 you know i no, no. The lore about you is different, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to leave that part there because I don't um, want this podcast to reveal the lore about me. But so, Brandon, your story made a good point, though, of make of and I think we hit on it a little bit earlier that, you know, these these sort of these things that Jones Day is doing, they maybe created a scenario where uh, discrimination could occur. But the firm sort of bills them or markets them as, you know, the special sauce, the thing that we do. I think you mentioned that that they credit some of this to the fact that they had fewer layoffs during the recession. Um, you know, what is it about having this secretive pay system or having this this powerful managing partner that, that the firm sees as a really good thing? 
So one of the attorneys who is uh, suing Jones Day said that uh, recruiters, when they came to her when she was at Harvard Law, told her that these structures, uh, specifically the the uh, black box uh, pay culture, was part of the firm's secret sauce that, uh, that that spared it from the recession. That essentially it made it more uh, nimble and and just they were able to weather this because of the benefits that were uh, bestowed by this this culture. And I mean, on one hand, I mean. It's true. Jones Day did do pretty well <laughs> during the recession. They weathered it, you know, pretty well. It's constantly uh, uh, named as uh, one of the firms that wrote it out the best, and is doing uh, pretty well. It's one of the most prestigious, biggest, yeah, uh, you know, lucrative law firms oh, in absolutely. the world. We should make that clear. Absolutely, and and that, that's you know, I mean, that, that's that's probably why these structures haven't drawn a whole lot of, uh, of public criticism up to this point is because it's been working really well. Um, on the other hand, uh, now we're on the other side of the, uh, the, the Me Too movement. <laughs> you know, we're, we're here, we're, sure. we're in the age of, uh, you know, where people are more comfortable coming forward with these issues. Uh, people are starting to uh, demand more when it comes to uh, diversity metrics. Uh, millennials, especially, are starting to look beyond just the salary and at work-life balance and at, uh, you know, when they have a family, they, they're going to be concerned about um, being able to spend more time with their family. And, and you know, here we have this, uh, this lawsuit that brings a lot of these issues up. And uh, I'm not sure, and I don't think anybody is sure, uh, whether Jones Day has been measuring these things. Um, we, you know, they, in response to this lawsuit, they released a statement talking about how many women have been promoted to partner, uh, even after taking uh, uh, family leave. I think it was something like 70% of the women who made partner had, had taken family leave at some time in their career. And it's right around 50% of the partner promotions over the last couple of years uh, have been women. But we don't know how much those women are making. Right. So they have more partners, but are these partners making half of what the male partners are making? I don't know. And that's kind of the <laughs> that's the that's, point. That's, that's, that's the, the whole thing. Game. Right, right. We don't know. We, <laughs> Right. And, you know, now we have a lawsuit. And so depending on how far along the lawsuit gets, we may get some answers to yeah. some of this. We may yeah. get some discovery on these issues and, and hear more. But, Brandon, it's been great to set the stage here. We talk a lot about issues about gender diversity and, and promotions in, in the law. So this is the real culture clash of the traditional way meets the Me Too movement. Thanks yeah. for explaining all of it to us, Brandon. Thanks for having me. start of the show, I got to talk about Mike, the situation Sorrentino, and I'd love to end the show talking about another fun one, Kim Kardashian West. You're doing amazing, sweetie. (laughs) Um, Yeah, there may be more cause to say that because she is studying to be a lawyer. Hmm. Let Hmm. that sink in. 
Well, her dad was a lawyer, famous one. Famously, That's right. Yeah. I was, I was going to mention that too. Yes. Yeah. So, in a recent Juice. big Vogue story, Kim revealed that she's begun a four-year law apprenticeship. Essentially, um, she's aiming to take the bar in 2022. Okay. Um, now, she's not going to law school. That's right. Okay. She also did she go to? Did she even go to college? She went. She didn't finish. So um, okay. she doesn't have that undergrad degree. She's not in law school. And so, of course, the next question is like, uh, how can she do this then? Yeah. Um, yeah. So the answer is California and three other states have an alternative route to becoming a practicing attorney. It's called reading the law. And it's basically an offshoot of the way it used to be. You used to just apprentice with an attorney. Right. And then take a bar exam and then you were a lawyer. And this, that's what she wants to do. This reminds me of Catch Me If You Can. Yeah. He, sure. He pretends to be a lawyer and takes the bar. And, and that was the one thing he didn't cheat on. He says he actually passed. Oh, that's right. right. Yeah. At yeah. the end of the movie, that's like the twist. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so for me, I think what's interesting is that this isn't really as out of the blue as the internet seemed to act like it was. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of all over the it place could, It's her, week. so the, the story becomes inflated in that way. But, but if you really think about it, and if you read this Vogue article, they make it clear, um, Kim's really into criminal justice reform. And the seeds of this maybe being a thing she'd want to pursue have been there all along. You might remember that over the summer, she played a big role in the release of a woman named Alice Marie Johnson. I do remember that. She went right. to the White House. She did. So um, so Kim played a key role in getting clemency for this woman who was a, who's a 63-year-old who'd been in an Alabama prison on a nonviolent drug charge since the mid-'90s. Uh-huh. Um, and in the Vogue article, Kim talks about that and how it spurred this urge to become a lawyer, she says this, the White House called me to advise to help change the system of clemency. And I'm sitting in the Roosevelt room with like a judge who had sentenced criminals and a lot of really powerful people. And I just sat there like, oh shit, I need to know more. I just felt like the system could be so different and I wanted to fight to fix it. And if I knew more, I could do more. I mean, that, I mean, that's better than some legal briefs I've read. That's true. And also- She's already on the path. Well, and also she's, I mean, not to be too- glib about her but she sounds like a lot of first year law students that you she, hear she really that, does. that you listen to and when you know they want to get into this you stuff. also pointed out something a few minutes ago that I was going to bring up like her dad was an attorney it's not like she has no um, familiarity with what that life is like um, she probably felt some inspiration from her for father Robert Kardashian yeah right. well what I mean I there, there were some pretty wild you read that was a pretty funny quote in its own right but there was some pretty interesting observations from her in her experience so far yeah. studying law uh, as a person who went to law school, I right. just sort of loved hearing Kim Kardashian's take on the subject matter. So in her first year doing this reading program, she's learning three subjects, criminal law, torts, and contracts. So mm-hmm. classics. Those are good. Those are, yeah, I mean, those, classics, are, the, those yes. are the classics. Yes. Um, the, so the holy trinity in a lot of ways. Um, for all the law students listening, here's how Kim feels about it. Torts is the most confusing. Contracts, the most boring. And <laughs> crim law, I can do in my sleep. I took my first test. I got 100. Super easy for me. The reading is what really gets me. It's so time consuming. The concepts I grasp in two seconds. I mean, same. Big same for me, my, my, my illustrious academic career. I'm very you know, good with concepts. Look, we're kind of joking huge. around about Kim and, and her comments, but I will say this is not that far off from what I remember a lot of my 1L classmates and I talking about. The reading really gets you that first year. Do we, the, do reading, we, the reading will get you. Do we have any... Do we know what Kanye's up to in all this? I mean, does, does Kanye have we, Kim. have we gotten a quote from him on this? Or the Vogue know. article is very, very funny. Where the 
the Vogue interviewer reached out to Kanye. He wasn't ever in person when she was interviewing Kim over mm-hmm. a couple of days. Reached out to him via email, and his responses to every question were like four words a piece. Sure. <laughs> so there was it was also, very funny. This is. Did you see the thing in there where she was talking about her dad and how he had a secret like? There like was a like room of OJ stuff in the in the library. Yes. Like they had a library in the house, and then there was like literally like a secret. Like you pull a book and a door opens. And she Kim like, used to like sneak she was like, in and look at it. Well, no, and she was like, "This is what, that's where he kept all his secret OJ stuff." And I was <laughs> right. like, "That's that's kind of, that sounds like it's weird, right? Maybe an ethical violation from thirty years ago or whatever." The other, uh, <laughs> the other glove. Yeah, right. <laughs> the, well, the one that fit. <laughs> I mean, the other thing that really struck me about this is, you know, it seems. Like, this will be tough for Kim to complete. Because I actually went to the California Bar's uh, webpage yeah, to what look happens? up what the requirements yeah. are. So basically, she has to do this thing where after the first year, she takes what's called the baby bar. And if she passes it, then she can follow up with the three more years of study and then take the official bar exam. Okay. Um, but she has to study law in a law office or a judge's chambers during regular business hours for at least 18 hours a week for a minimum of 48 weeks to qualify to take that baby bar. Okay. That seems hard because the Vogue article very clearly lays out that her legal mentors that are sort of sponsoring her through this, and everyone needs one of those to be a legal reader in this way, mm-hmm. they are coming to her house for study sessions. Um, I'm not sure that is going to meet all the requirements of the California bar, but we'll see. <laughs> I, I'm not like reflexively like anti-Kardashians just as a cultural thing, but like I will, I will eat my shoe if she ever actually takes this test. <laughs> I mean, this is like this reeks of like weird publicity stuff. I hear what you're saying, but the Kardashians are always reinventing themselves. That's true. So I think uh, people underestimate them at their own peril. Families Coming. are always rising and falling in America. Is that what you're saying? That's <laughs> literally what I'm saying. Hawthorne. Yes. <laughs> That'll wrap up our star-studded show today, guys. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Brandon Lowry, and contributing reporters, Dorothy Atkins, Natalie Rodriguez, and Ryan Boyson. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glassman. And as we mentioned before, we'd love for you to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening right now and leave us a written review. It helps other people find us. If you want to know more about any of the legal topics we've talked about today, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and join us again next week.